Episode 15, The Trump and Proletariat. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to the events of January 6th, 2021. I'm Scott Kuhn. In this episode, I'll examine what I was able to find from a representative slice of 100 Capital Insurrection defendants with regard to their occupational status and educational attainment. Although that's a relatively small number, it does paint a picture from which we can begin to draw a few generalizations because examination of the subject of class has rarely entered into the narrative around the capital insurrection. To help make sense of the data, I'll then turn to the classical Marxist concept of the lumpen proletariat to help understand the social forces behind the Trumpist movement, particularly the most violent and extreme elements of the Trumpist movement, i.e. the people who were willing to storm the capital on January 6th. But before we get to this inquiry, Let's take a quick moment to outline some of the recent developments in the capital insurrection cases and investigations. First, here are the numbers, according to Sedition Tracker. So far, there have been 623 individuals charged, 295 indicted, three deceased, uh, one Joseph Barnes, who died in a motorcycle crash in June, and Christopher Georgia from Georgia, who committed suicide on January 12th. The latest addition to this list is one John Anderson, age 61, of St. Augustine, Florida, who passed away on September 21st. Anderson was not one of those so-called tourist people, by the way. Uh, He actually faced an eight-count indictment that included charges of assaulting a federal officer. So he passed away, cause of death unknown. And one dismissal, uh, Christopher Kelly of New York, 88 convictions so far, which is an increase of 13 since the last episode. Mainly misdemeanors, and again, it looks like those misdemeanor cases are being cleared from the docket first, and so uh, many of the more serious cases will occur later. And finally, nine sentencings. So they're making progress. It's a tough slog. It's going to be a long, uh, long uh, slog, which I I do when I started the podcast. So hopefully I'll be with you uh, through the long process of convictions and appeals. Thanks again to Sedition Tracker. Now, if you're obsessed with the prospect that an insurrectionist mob might try to overthrow democracy in the United States, give Sedition Tracker a try. Visit seditiontracker.com. That's seditiontracker.com. Sedition Tracker. Because sedition has consequences. The, The show doesn't actually have sponsors. I just spend so much time on Sedition Tracker and several other websites, um, but so much time that I, I feel like it might be good to just give them a plug. In other news, uh, Jeffrey McKillop, the former Special Forces operator and CIA contractor who made my list of the worst January 6th defendants in Episode 8 for stabbing a a D.C. Metropolitan Police Captain in the face with a metal flagpole, has been acting like a colossal baby in court. Uh, This defendant has a history of throwing tantrums, yelling, screaming, crying. Um, His emotions seem to be poorly regulated. Now, that's not even news at this point. I mean, there have been any number of defendants who've been acting this way. Uh, It's just remarkable that someone who's a, a combat vet a uh, member of a supposedly elite organization, uh, nonetheless is just acting like a child in 
in open court. I mean, not even a well-mannered child, right? I mean, he actually gives toddlers a bad name. It's an insult to children to say that Jeffrey McKellop uh, is acting like a child. Uh, he's acting like a, a privileged person who, you know, really just never, I don't know if he's a product of bad parenting, um, but it's just, you know, he's not even like, I mean, the other inmates should just laugh at this guy because it's just absolutely uh, just something that should be derided. Uh, you know, he has absolutely no dignity or self-respect to be acting the way he acts in court. So uh, he's still throwing tantrums, doesn't understand why he's subject to pretrial detention. But to my mind, if, if you're trying to claim that you're not a danger to the community, it's probably a better strategy to demonstrate that you actually have some emotional maturity and, and try to restrain yourself. Um, but he's just been doing the opposite of that, and, and it hasn't been working, uh, strangely enough. So, um, you know, I've, we've seen all kinds of strategies, right? We've had Pauline Bauer with her bizarre sovereign citizen defense, and, uh, you know, Jeffrey McKellop, who seems to feel like if he just, you know, throws tantrums in court, um, people will just let him go. And it's just not something to which federal judges are going to respond. That's not an effective defense strategy. So uh, a bold move. We'll see if it plays off for him. Don't think it will. He's facing a serious list of charges and, uh, you know, may spend decades in federal penitentiary. All right, so let's turn to the Eastman memo. Um, on the 20th of September, a memorandum from John C. Eastman, who's a uh, former law professor at the Chapman University of School of Law in Orange County, California, and the founding director of the Center for Constitutional Law, which is a far-right think tank associated with Claremont Institute, uh, it became public. So this memo was labeled at the very top, privileged and confidential, even though it pertains, of course, to you know matters of great public interest. And it details much of what we already knew about the plan by the Trump administration to circumvent and obstruct the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th. Uh, planned right, you know, next thing, just January 6th. This is, these are the January 6th contingencies. Now, the basic details of the plan that basically asserted that Vice President Pence was authorized to effectively nullify the presidential election. Um, and we already knew this. We already knew that this was part of the plan uh, from various communications on Parler and elsewhere. Uh, in fact, there are other people on, in public forums uh, who, you know, communicated this plan uh, in, 20, in late uh, 2020. Um, what's original here uh, is that it shows a direct link between the scheme that was circulating among the would-be insurrectionists in the lead-up to the insurrection on the Internet and the Trump administration itself. Now, to my mind, there's no better way to describe it than just fascist garbage. Uh, it begins and proceeds from the false claim that seven states had sent dual slates of electors, which is simply factually incorrect. Those dual slates of electors were acting effectively as private individuals. They had no legitimacy and no authority. Um, you know, I feel like we need Jackie Weaver, right? You know, uh, they, they had no authority. So um, these alternate electors were just basically private individuals and they were perpetrating a sham. It would be interesting to see some kind of link between Eastman, let's say, 
uh, and the scheme to send these alternate electors. So it begins with that and ends with the claim that, quote, the fact is that the Constitution assigns this power to the vice president as the ultimate arbiter, end quote. Now, the vice president has no such authority under the Constitution. The vice president has the role of the presiding officer and nothing more. Presiding officer means presiding officer. Uh, you're banging the gavel. Uh, if this were true, if the vice president could nullify election of results, this would have happened before, right? So this is a, a very novel interpretation. Um, but one, you know, I think they may have planned to, to use in a legal challenge, right? So it's a documentation, in effect, of a crime against the Constitution. And one would hope that if you have someone issuing a document that shows that you are about to undermine electoral democracy in the United States, there would be consequences. There would be consequences for subverting the Constitution, for subverting our, our democratic norms, the rule of law, and electoral democracy itself. So John Eastman probably ought to face some consequences. At a minimum, he should be disbarred. Um, this is evidence of an actual seditious conspiracy that was used to promote a violent attack on the United States Capitol on January 6th. Now, you could do, I could do a whole episode on the Eastman memo, um, which many of you people who are listening to this are probably very interested in the Capitol insurrection. You've probably read in its entirety. It's a short memo uh, already. But for me, the subtext is that it points to the possibility that one or more members of the Supreme Court may have been involved. So, uh, you know, Eastman himself has some connection to the court. Eastman is a former law clerk for Clarence Thomas. So uh, it will be interesting to see uh, if, you know, he has any, has had any communication with Justice Thomas or uh, anyone else affiliated with court, uh, any, you know, current clerks uh, or any other staff on the Supreme Court. So um, it looks like, you know, just from the Eastman memo itself, um, there was the plan to, you know, again, have Vice President Pence subvert the Electoral College results and anticipate also uh, a Supreme Court case wherein they would uh, challenge the constitutionality of the Electoral Count Act. So my hunch is that, you know, it could be, right? Maybe he ran it by someone on the Supreme Court and say, hey, is this a viable strategy? Now, I personally believe, and I've always believed, that Bush v. Gore was wrongly decided. Supreme Court should have stayed out of it. But one of the consequences of that decision is that they very publicly stated uh, the, their intent in the decision, in the, the opinion of the majority, that this is non-presidential, and we don't want to become the ultimate authority, arbiter of presidential elections in the United States. And uh, as much as, you know, I might... Uh, see some of the members of the current court as uh, you know being just rampant reactionaries. Nonetheless, they stood by that, and so you know we'll never know probably. Um, but you know it could be that Chief Justice John Roberts may have had a hand in saving democracy on January sixth. Um, you know there there may have been things that went on because if you look at the maps of the events that were scheduled for January 6th. Um, 
Yeah, you see the ellipse clearly marked, you see the Capitol clearly marked, you also see the Supreme Court of the United States clearly marked on those maps. So whatever legal challenges that um, may have been supposed to, you know, planned for January 6th, uh, apparently did not happen. So Eastman himself, John C. Eastman, certainly going to catch a subpoena. Um, and we'll see where that leads. But, you know, I've been skeptical, you know, that consequences will be imposed further up the, the chain of command. Uh, we see a lot of low-level defendants. We see a lot of these tourists. We see a lot of, uh, you know, people who actually assaulted police. Um, but so far, as far as people within the Trump administration or people who advise the Trump administration or people who even organize the rallies, uh, we haven't seen a lot. So um, if you have someone, you know, announcing uh, in this supposedly confidential memorandum that is now public um, that they intend to subvert democracy, that would be of interest to the January 6th uh, House Select Committee. And speaking of that, since the last episode, we've had two major press releases from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. And both of these relate to subpoenas. So on September 23rd, it was announced that Chairman Benny Thompson has sent, quote, letters to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Communications Daniel Scavino, former Defense Department official Kashap Patel, and former Trump advisor Stephen Bannon. So, wow, right? That's a lot of work. Um, but, you know, the committee wasn't just done just yet. Now, just six days after they announced those four subpoenas, Chairman Thompson announced that, quote, the select committee has issued subpoenas for deposition testimony and records to individuals tied to the events and rallies leading up to the January 6th insurrection, including the January 6th rally, the ellipse, that immediately preceded the violent attack on the U.S. Capitol. And the people that uh, receive these subpoenas for materials and depositions are Amy Kramer, who's a, a Tea Party uh, person, one of the uh, original Tea Party activists um, that, you know, played such a big role in that AstroTurf movement that eventually, effectively, uh, helped the Republicans regain control of, the, uh, of Congress in uh, 2010. Um, who's also founder and chair of Women for America First, the organizer of the rally, on January 6th. Also, her daughter, Kylie Kramer, the founder and executive director of Women for America First. And by the way, uh, this is something that you see time and time again in uh, these various political organizations, right, where uh, someone who's involved in leadership winds up hiring their, their child. Um, that is a sure sign of grift. You know, if you do a nationwide job search for a position of authority in your organization, and the person you come up with is your own child, that's just not, that's just not legitimate. You don't have a, a legitimate organization at that point. What you have, in effect, is a family grifting business. Anyway, moving on, um, Cynthia Chafian, Chafian, excuse me, who submitted the first permit application on behalf of Women for America First for the January 6th rally, and who was founder of, quote, the 80% Coalition. Uh, Chafian herself was involved um, in the fight uh, in on the west, the lower west terrace of the Capitol, and you know was riding around back and forth on, on the golf cart, and you know is literally right there in, 
right where some of the most vicious fighting during the insurrection occurs and is goading uh, the attackers on. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, obviously what she did on the 6th should probably result in charges, but her involvement probably be more serious, which is one of the reasons why I think we haven't actually seen uh, an arrest made in that case yet. Caroline Wren, uh, who's listed on the permit paperwork for the January 6th rally as a VIP advisor. Maggie Mulvaney, who's listed on the permit paperwork uh, rally for January 6th as the VIP lead, and so would be intimately involved with um, you know all the the, uh, the speakers at that event. And of course, uh, you know you might recognize the surname Mulvaney, right? So another tie to the administration. Justin Caporeal of Event Strategies Incorporated, who is listed on the permit paperwork for the January 6th rally as the project manager. Tim Unes, U-N-E-S, excuse me, of Event Strategies Incorporated, listed on the permit paperwork for the January 6th rally as the stage manager. Megan Powers of Empowers Consulting LLC, who's listed on the permit paperwork for the January 6th rally as the operations manager for scheduling and guidance. One Hannah Salem of Salem Strategies, LLC, who's listed on the permit paperwork for the January 6th rally as the operations manager for logistics and communication. Lyndon Brintnall of RMS Protective Services, who's listed on the permit paperwork for January 6th rally as the on-site supervisor and who has links to uh, various other figures, um, you know, that could possibly uh, go somewhere. Uh, and Katrina Pearson, a former Trumpet campaign official who uh, was reportedly involved in both the rally on January 5th and 6th and who was in direct communication with the former president about the rallies. So we now have 15 individuals in total who have received committee uh, subpoenas from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And... Uh, some of these people are clearly in a position to know some stuff that's relevant to the investigation. Uh, we have a lot of unanswered questions. What was Trump doing between the rally at the Ellipse and his sort of petulant go-home video, right? Which, as bad as it was, was apparently the best take of all the videos that he did. Why were there so many different rallies at different locations with different groups and different sponsors? And where did all the money come from? Uh, so there's you know little questions like this that they will have to answer and you know provide all the documents and give answers under oath. So no kind of privilege applies here. Uh, Jamie Raskin and more importantly, you know, Chairman Thompson have both said that they have plans to use criminal contempt to enforce these subpoenas. And there is the assertion of executive privilege on the part of the Trump administration, although I see how... You know, it's difficult to see it, say how that would apply um, to, you know, someone like Amy Kramer, uh, because, you know, supposedly these were independent events, right? So why would executive privilege apply to someone like her? And moreover, it's up to the Biden administration itself to enforce any claims of executive privilege. And that's not happening. It looks like the Biden administration doesn't believe that there's such a thing as former executive privilege. So it seems likely that the, the committee is going to be issuing more subpoenas. Now, I know that there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of skepticism regarding this, and I, I'm 
I'll be first to, to, to admit that as well. We don't have a great record of imposing consequences for people, uh, powerful people uh, who are involved in establishment politics uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, you look at the financial collapse, uh, which was basically orchestrated by people who were using these various tranches of uh, bad debt that was intentionally issued by financial institutions to soak up origination fees without winding up having any actual uh, possible liability for, for making bad loans, right? The people who uh, securitize those loans. None of those people involved in, in the, the fraud that perpetuated, you know, that, that predicated the uh, financial collapse in 2008. None of those people went to jail. You know, 2000, uh, 2001, right, September 11th, uh, orchestrated clearly by the Saudis, you know, the fact that we flew all the Saudi nationals out of the country be a big tip-off. Instead, it was used as a rationale to go to war with Iraq, which wasn't even remotely involved. In fact, it was an enemy of Saudi Arabia that they would be more than happy for us to take care of. Uh, you know, no Saudis, uh, you know, there have been no repercussions uh, for this, the Saudi government. You know, in fact, you know, literally you've got, um, you know, the crown prince, you know, cutting up people uh, in embassies in, in Turkey and, and facing no consequences, right? So we're not good at imposing consequences. The record itself uh, is not particularly good. I mean, you go back to Iran-Contra, right, where even the people who, you know, clearly uh, were, were guilty in that case wind up receiving pardons from uh, the first Bush, right? So, um, you know, if just... The idea that we're going to impose legal consequences on Trump or his inner circle or the people who work for him, um, you know, is something of which I have been very skeptical. Nonetheless, um, you know, there's, there is the possibility, right? So the best news in all of this is that it's all being done in secret. It, it would be great. I mean, it would be enjoyable, at least. It would be very good television to watch these people sweat it out in front of a public hearing, right? As, um, you know, the, the Republicans did in, in this fraudulent uh, investigations of Benghazi where they kept uh, subpoenaing uh, Secretary Clinton. Uh, nonetheless, that's not happening, right? What's happening is that they're, they're giving depositions and they're submitting not their documents, but it's all being done in private. And why is that? Well. Um, the reason why is because even though it will all eventually, hopefully, enter the public record, um, you don't want to taint the jury pool, right? So the fact that they are doing this not in a public way the, shows that there is a possibility. This is how they do business when there's a possibility that Congress might initiate criminal referrals based on their investigation. So there's no kind of privilege Congress is reserving the right to make criminal referrals on the basis of their findings. Um, and there's, there's more stuff to come, right? So notably absent from this, besides Pearson, uh, are the list of people, you know, uh, who were involved in the January 5th rally. And there's some question about why were there different people speaking on the January 5th rally and why were the people speaking on the January 6th rally? People on the January 5th rally... Uh, look to be a, a list of people who might be actually more, um, you know, more radical. Uh, more, Ali Alexander, Roger Stone, 
more directly involved with, um, you know, possible insurrectionist activity. And so I expect that we're going to see subpoenas. I mean, if they're looking at people in the January 6th rally, we're certainly going to look at those people from the January 5th rally. And moreover, um, there is a possibility that, that perhaps some of these people, you know, Amy Kramer uh, and others, might have some buyer's remorse, right? So Amy Kramer actually poses something uh, you know, on, the, on January 6th saying, well, this is the day when the Republican Party ended. And, you know, well, she did that. She helped plan and organize the rally. And she might not have been in on it. Um, but nonetheless, she might know some details that would help the committee in their investigation. So while there are, are you know, people who might be interested in, you know, trying to, to obstruct the work of the committee, nonetheless, there might be people who want to flip or who at least want to give honest testimony uh, that might point to the culpability of the Trump administration in the events of the January 6th insurrection. So this is all very fascinating. And I know that there's been a lot of uh, sort of reluctance to, to credit the work of the committee because it's taken so long. But um, it looks like you know, this is going to be an ongoing issue well into the midterms uh, in 2022, right? So, you know, by the time we actually get this testimony, by the time uh, the work of the committee becomes public, by the time a report is issued, by the time any kind of criminal referrals that might be necessary occur, you're, you're looking at the summer of 2022. So not just in terms of protecting democracy, but as an ongoing political issue, this is going to be news uh, for quite some time. Now, naturally, again, Trump has sued to prevent the testimony of these people. Um, but, you know, that's not something an innocent person would do. And, you know, he actually called for subpoenas to be issued to Antifa and BLM, which is absurd, of course, because, you know, during... Uh, the, the, the time under consideration, his administration was actually in charge of the Justice Department. And they could have sent subpoenas to corporate headquarters of Antifa and BLM at any time, right? But they didn't do that. So uh, it's a classic red herring. All right. So next, turn to the main subject of this week's episode, really, this has turned into a, pretty much a bi-weekly podcast at this point, uh, thanks to the infinite regress of uh, writing, rewriting, drafting, data collection, and, and the rest. Um, what I failed to do was to look at 100 cases, as to say 100 out of the 100, uh, sorry, the 623 uh, people who've been arrested to date. Now, I did this in part because um, we actually haven't really looked at who exactly these people were. We know a lot about whether or not they were in the military uh, because that information is publicly available and also many of them uh, wore gear that identified themselves as either current or former, uh, former members of uh, the military active duty uh, or reserves. Um, but... Beyond that, there's not a lot that's publicly known. The press releases, the various news stories rarely figure, uh, they, they rarely feature actually information about these people's occupation or educational attainment. And uh, some of this is, you know, I mean, 
makes sense, right? I mean, why would you, if you're a graduate of a college or university, say, oh, by the way, I realize I've been arrested for attempting to interfere with the peaceful transition of power, and I just want to let you know that I'm a graduate of XYZ State University, right? That's not a thing, you know, and the alumni offices aren't out there issuing press releases to, to, to claim these people either, nor are employers rushing to say, yes, our employees are uh, supporting the insurrection, um, you know. So I want to just look, take an in-depth look and try to get a hundred cases uh, where I could actually identify people's educational attainment and their, um, you know, to the extent to which they, they have a job, right? Whether they have a job, whether they're on disability, um, or, you know, whether they perhaps had been fired uh, either before or after uh, due to their involvement in uh, extremist politics. And I found that there's a lot of missing data, unfortunately, and that as a social scientist is a problem. In order to get to 100 cases uh, where I had any information at all, I actually had to check 147. So out of a sample size, you know, of, well, a, a population of 623, I had to uh, take a slice of 147 in order to get to 100. And unfortunately, what that means is that there's something of, of selection bias. So the question is, is there a systematic difference between the people for whom I was able to get information and the people for whom no information was available? And the answer is clearly yes. Um, and for social science, that's just an enormous problem. First off, 100 cases is not a great number to begin with. Your confidence interval is, well, for a population of 623, uh, it's, it's close to 9%. Um, that would be your, you know, your, your plus or minus uh, margin of error. So, I mean, regardless of that, it's it just initial starting point to try to find some information about the class composition of the people who took part in the January 6th insur insurrection. Now, I looked at all the, you know, the, the usual publicly available sources, right? So, you know, did LinkedIn searches for, for all these folks. Um, and, uh, you know, there's at this point, of course, a problem in that many of these people uh, may have scrubbed their LinkedIn accounts. They may have deleted their accounts. And uh, quite frankly, many of these people may be people who you know, aren't on LinkedIn, uh, if you, you know, have a, a job in retail or the service sector, uh, you know, or you're, you don't have a professional job, uh, you, you might not even uh, be on LinkedIn. Uh, moreover, press might, it, it might not reach their attention uh, when the average, you know, person uh, who's a, a local retail employee uh, is arrested. And certainly for people who are on disability, let's say, that information is private, right? Uh, you would have to, you know, the government has that information. And of course, um, that is not something, they don't actually publish the, the information about everybody who is actually on SSDI. Um, so, and you compare that to people for whom the information is available, right? There's a, there's a selection effect because um, you get people who are local business owners, um, local journalists who are covering these kinds of stories will know who, oftentimes who these business owners are in the community. Uh, so, you know, they might be people who've actually run ads in their newspaper. 
So we, we you know, that's that's a, a selection effect with regard to the the data availability, um, and there's a lot of reason to believe that you know the people who for whom I was unable to find information uh, vary systematically from the people for whom I was able to get information. So nonetheless, um, that being said, you know, let's go into what I was actually able to find. So the first question is with regard to education. Now, um, I was I was skeptical. Uh, you know, I there have been claims that well, almost none of these people are college educated, and sort of just you know anecdotally looking at uh, who's arrested. I think well, no, that's that's not quite right, right? I can take think of many people off the top of my head who have the kind of professional jobs that normally would be associated with a college degree. Uh, there are a number of people, for example, who are uh, past or current even, uh, in the case of Warnigers, uh, you know, serving military officers, right? And usually, uh, you know, almost always those people ha will have a, a college degree uh, and various people in different professional careers, right? So, you know, I, I believe most realtors, uh, for example, uh, are college graduates, and there are any number of those people at, at the insurrection. But nonetheless, in this uh, the slice, and again, I looked at 147, I was really only able to find information about uh, 100 of them. Um, I was able to find a, uh, a total of eight. So eight people that I was able, were, was able to document actually have a four-year degree or better. So who are they? Um, just go through who these people are. Um, there's uh, Jeffrey William Sills, um, Robert Moores, who uh, is a substitute teacher and uh, has a degree from Penn State, John Clarence Wilkerson IV, uh, who's a graduate of St. Joseph's University, David Lee Judd, who's a graduate of the University of North Texas, Brady Knowlton, who is a graduate of Southern Methodist University, uh, Michael Fitzgerald, who has an MBA from the University of Wisconsin at La Crosse, um, Doc, Dr. Kenneth Kelly, uh, who is a medical degree from the University of Arkansas for Medical Science, which is the uh, medical school that has the 10th highest acceptance rate in the United States. So he has, you know, an, an MD, so an advanced degree. And uh, his friend Leonard Grupo, um, who's a 1995 graduate of a, the Interservice PA program, Physician's Assistant Program, at the Army Medical Center at Fort Sam Houston, uh, which is a, quite a, a prestigious program, actually. And uh, he himself is the son of a Leonard K. Grupo, I believe, I haven't been able to document it, uh, who was a Republican um, elected official, state assemblyman, born in 1942, apparently still living. Um, so actually, sorry, his middle initial is Q, his son's middle initial is Q. Um, so, um, you know, even though Leonard Q. Grupo, uh, who was arrested, was from Texas or has spent most of his career in Texas, um, as a, a uh, I believe a, a major, actually, rose to the rank of major in the Army and is a physician's assistant. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, looks to be a son of a Republican official, uh, which I 
I know I did an episode of people who are connected officially to the Republican Party and did not notice them. Nonetheless, I probably maintain that, you know, Larry Q. Grupo, uh, graduate in 1995, uh, is probably the son of Leonard Q. Grupo, born in 1942. And there's another Leonard Q. Grupo, Leonard Q. Grupo III, uh, living in Pennsylvania at this time. So they're probably uh, a direct line of Leonard Grupos. Uh, anyway, you know, there's a bit of an interesting story. You could do a, a digression on that. Uh, Dr. Kelly and Leonard Grupo uh, appeared to be friends. They, they met uh, while they were working in the medical field in Texas and went to the insurrection together. And finally, Audrey Ann Southard Rumsey, um, kind of, you know, on the line on this one, she actually has an associate's degree in music from Santa Rosa Junior College in California. Um, and is apparently a soprano, a fairly accomplished music instructor, and uh, also a singer. So, uh, again, out of 100 people, I was able to document 8%, right, as having uh, college degrees. And um, that's, you know, compared to the overall rate, the overall rate for Americans is 42%. Um, it's about the same for uh, white Americans, which I believe all these people are, and overwhelmingly, you know, uh, the uh, demographics for insurrection defendants were uh, non-Hispanic Caucasians, um, and the national average, again, for, you know, both groups and the population as a whole and non-Hispanic Caucasian people uh, having four-year uh, four degrees is 42%. So 8%, that's much lower, right? And even if um, I'm wrong, right? Even if I was unable, you know, something like, even if it's double, right? That's still much lower than the average rate in the population of people actually having four-year degrees. So insofar as having a four-year degree is an indicator of social class, we would say that um, overall, the educational attainment of people who are actually involved and charged in the capital insurrection so far is much lower than the population as a whole, both for the particular demographic group, which is uh, white non-Hispanic Americans, and um, the population as a whole. So the next thing I, I looked at is the information on uh, occupation, right? Now, some again, for 47 of 147 people, I was able to, able to find any occupational information at all. There are some people who I look at and it's like, well, you know, um, I strongly suspect they may all be on disability. Um, you know, we don't have a welfare state anymore, but for, for many people, SSDI winds up taking the place of that, uh, you know, um, for people who are, are out of the workforce and yet still in the prime age. And again, you know, not just in the data, but there's also just a selection effect of people who are able to travel on a random Wednesday in January uh, to be able to go and attack uh, the U.S. Capitol. And so there's a lot of people, you know, like realtors, make their own schedule. Uh, and, you know, of course, unemployed people and people on disability. Uh, people like William Cressman, right, for example, uh, you know, are, are able to make that uh, people who have nine to five jobs with regular schedules. Probably not something you get time off, right? Uh, although there are any number of people um, who actually did get time off. Um, I'm thinking of the Ch Chicago police officer, uh, Carol Chesviziak, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, you know, who actually took time off from his job. Actually, no, I'm sorry, he was injured on the job. And then, anyway, uh, any you know, number of people, you know, 
It's a lot easier to do this if you're unemployed or marginally employed uh, or if you're on some, some sort of benefit. So I'm not going to go through each of the 100 cases I reviewed, but I, I, didn't, I did a bit of categorization. Um, and to complicate matters more, the totals add up to more than 100% because uh, these are not mutually exclusive categories. So for example, people who have a military affiliation, uh, you can retire from the military, many people uh, with 20 years, and then go into the private sector and then you know start a business as well uh, and then perhaps also take private sector employment so you know you could be counted like up to three times in, in uh, as different data points here um but in my my, my classification now there, there are different categories for which i have different degrees of uh confidence right so first of which is uh skilled trades so out of 100 i was able to find 18% uh, that uh, are people who have occupations that are described as, you know, roughly speaking, skilled trades, right? So, you know, um, electricians, HVAC, repair people, uh, things of that nature. And I have a fair degree of confidence in this number. It matches up well with the proportion of people in the population who uh, are people who work in the skilled trades. So, um, and also, it just seemed like a lot of, you know, seems like just these are people who have stable employment and uh, this information is just much more likely to be reported than someone who, you know, goes from job to job, uh, you know, working in, in various retail and service jobs. Uh, next, I was only able to find 10, 10%, in other words, uh, who work in either the retail or service sector. And... That, I think, is an undercount, right? So included in the 47 people for whom I was not able to find any information, uh, I suspect many of those people actually do work in the retail or service sector, but I simply wasn't able to find any information about them because um, it's just not publicly known, wasn't published in press reports, and they've never, uh, you know, done anything where there's some kind of affiliation with a professional grouping uh, or, you know, LinkedIn profile that I'd be able to find online. Only 3% were people who I, I was able to identify as retired. And again, that's probably an undercount. Um, I was being rather conservative when looking at the ages. Uh, so, you know, I didn't automatically assume uh, that people were necessarily retired if they were over 65, uh, you know, and at the capital insurrection. Um, but again, this is people who are identified in press reports. Uh, as retired, and um, I imagine there's, there's a data problem with that as well. Probably more of those people uh, in the 47 for whom I was able to get no usable information probably also retired. Professionals, um, you know, sort of an arbitrary uh, kind, of, kind of a category, but these are jobs that usually might require a college degree, but not always. 18%, um, and I, I have a fair degree of confidence that that number is accurate. It seems quite likely to me when you look at uh, the distribution of professionals in the overall population and then look at the distribution uh, in the data, uh, these are people whose jobs uh, were known to the media. And so that seems fairly solid. Business owners uh, and 13%. So 13 out of 100 uh, are business owners. And there's varying degrees, right? There are people who are Definitely owners of very well-established businesses uh, who are involved in enterprises that, you know, 
were known to local members of the press when they published their stories about the arrests. Uh, and then there are people who, you know, I was just able to find it by looking up at incorporation records. Uh, I recall one fellow who, you know, uh, has a firm that's involved in a line of business that, you know, the letter, the name of the firm is like one letter off from a much more well-established firm. And then you look at the address and the incorporation records and uh, it's like some, uh, a single wide trailer out in, in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, might not be uh, very much of a business, but nonetheless still counted as a business owner. Uh, this is a, here's another like sort of subjective category, but sort of new age people. Uh, people who have a, a job that is involved in some flavor of what one might call woo, right? Um, we looked at Hostetter last episode, you know, uh, who's affiliated uh, with some, the COVID shutdown movement in Orange County, California, um, anti-COVID restriction movement in California. Um, and it, I found three, right? So for some reason, and I, I don't know why, but for some reason, uh, if you're a yoga practitioner, uh, you, you know, or, or a life coach, uh, you really liked Trump. Um, and I, I don't want to paint a broad brush, but for some reason, uh, a lot of these sort of woo affiliated people, uh, who, you know, believe this sort of non-scientific or pseudoscientific or, uh, sort of spiritual practices who somehow make their living off of them. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to slam yoga, right? I mean, yoga is fine. It's swell. It's good. It's form of exercise. Um, but it's not like 3% of them. And, and, you know, these may not be people who are particularly well radicalized into right-wing politics, but they're definitely sort of predisposed to believing, uh, you know, various random claims on the internet. Um, now, identifiably, I, in this sample, and it's not too different from, you know, the number as a whole, but uh, I was able to find 21 or 21% of people who were affiliated in some way with the law enforcement or the military. That includes, you know, um, people who are current reservists and or, you know, people who uh, had, had left the service. So that number matches up fairly well with the number that you see overall for uh, in all the different listings. Uh, George Washington University Program on Extremism has a good number. So that that's something we can have uh, with a fair degree of confidence. Again, part of what that does, it, it, it it says that this sample, or really it's a trench, but this sample of people from my spreadsheet um, actually is pretty representative of capital insurrection defendants as a whole. Only 1% I, were, I was able to identify as a current student. She actually hasn't taken down her, her LinkedIn page. Um, but I suspect that there may be more. There are more college-age people in the sample uh, who... I was unable, unable to identify as having any employment. And, you know, they, they might be college students. But again, that's that could be a data problem, right? So um, on the other hand, it, it is relatively consistent. If you're dealing with a population that consists primarily of people who do not have college degrees, you might expect a lower proportion of college-age people in that slice of the population to actually currently be students. And uh, finally, 3%. In uh, what in the agricultural sector, right? So two people who are uh, farm workers and one person who actually owns what appears to be a uh, thriving family farm, um, which you know, not not too terribly different uh, from from the population as a whole. So, what does that tell us? Well, I mean, you know, sorry, my dog is 
going nuts for no reason. Um, I think we have good confidence in some of these numbers. I think uh, with regard to the, the business owners, the professionals, the people who work in the skills trades, uh, I think that there's, with regard to retired people, students, and uh, people who work in either the retail or service sector, those numbers are underreported. Under uh, there's simply, most of those people, there'd be no reason why there'd be public record of their employment. So I think actually, you know, there's an undercount with regard to people, especially in the service sector, right? 10% is awfully low uh, when you look at the overall economy. Um, and I, I think, the, you know, of those 47 people for whom I was able to find no information whatsoever, um, there are, you know, probably many of them uh, working in the service sector. Now, I've, I've left out one category, and actually that category is uh, the category of people for whom, uh, you know, I, I'm directly addressing this episode. And these are people who appear to uh, not be employed uh, or, uh, you know, perhaps they're on some sort of form of government assistance, um, but I was able to document uh, they're sort of marginal employment, right? So maybe they're currently employed, but if you look at their their, their employment histories, they're this long history of, you know, just bouncing back and forth from job to job. Or maybe these are people who are, you know, um, not living on their own in some way, right? So, you know, they're group housing or they're living with their parents uh, past a certain age or so, Um they're, you know, or they're in rehab, uh, you know, which was the case for, for some of these folks. Uh, or they, they appear to be doing something that might appear to be like a, a grift, right? So, I mean, if I can find no professional information for you, but you appear to be a YouTuber, and yet you don't, you know, and you're, you're very public about that, and yet you don't have any employment information, um, or you have, uh, like, a long criminal history that is also, you know, public knowledge. So... Um, one of the social science terms that you see, uh, and it first came to popularity in the late 1990s, uh, is NEET, N-E-E-T-S. So, um, you know, not in education or, or training, uh, not, sorry, not in education, training, or employment. Um, this, you know, this category, which, you know, has become its own subculture, uh, or, you know, well, I don't want to overgeneralize, but like, let's say incels, a lot of these people are, are young men who may be participating in, in incel culture, uh, what's called the, the manosphere, right? Uh, or the older term, which is going to again be the subject of the rest of the episode, the, the lumpen proletariat, right? People who are not engaged in uh, any kind of employment, but who are nonetheless finding other ways to support themselves. Um, and if you look at I'm anticipating a little bit, uh, but in Marxist theory, you know, uh, a lot of this does involve uh, criminality or various forms of what Marx calls parasitic activity. So I'm actually going to go through these 21 individuals uh, one by one and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, why I decided to include them in this category of people who, um, you know, it's not, be I, I didn't include them in the category because I wasn't able to find any gainful employment, but rather because I was able to find information that indicated that they uh, mean are not employed or they are engaged in some kind of active grift, actually, or who are really at the margins, I would suppose uh, you, you would say, uh, with regard to economic activity, productive economic activity. And again, this number came as a surprise to me 
All right. I did. I expected perhaps we might find a large number of people. But there's, you know, I actually didn't go into this episode thinking I was going to call it the Trump and proletariat. Nonetheless, something like one out of five people in this slice. Uh, you know, and again, that's not including the 47 people for whom I was able to find no information at all, but many of whom I expect actually might also fit in this category. Um, all right, so the first one is uh, Sandra Weyer of Mechanicsburg, uh, Pennsylvania, 58, who's described as a, a couch surfer, right? So this is someone who goes from house to house. Um, and yeah, usually at 58, you're, you know, that's past like your gap year. Uh, or, you know, your, your post-college years or, or whatever. Uh, most people are not couch surfing at 58. Um, second is Zvonimir Zerlina and his friend Gabriel Brown. We'll, we'll lump them together. They appear to be associated with one another, at least according to the indictment. They were both involved in an attack on the media. And surprise, surprise, they are, you know, one might consider members of the alternative media. They're both described as YouTubers. But if you look at their YouTube channels, there are many people who, you know, uh, well, there are some people who manage to make some kind of living off of YouTube. Uh, I don't suspect these they fit in the category. Um, uh, for example, Brown has 547 subs and uh, Zerlina has... 1.5 K or one, uh, one, sorry, a thousand five hundred uh, subs. So you're, you're not making a living uh, off of that. Um, and they're both from New York. Uh, Zerlina is 31 and Brown is 38. Now, Brown actually scrubbed his YouTube channel of all content. Zerlina, who goes by Zykotic, Z-Y-K-O-T-I-C, on YouTube. I actually left, I, I think, four videos up. And it's just, I'm, you know, I thought about maybe including uh, some of the audio in the intro. and just not, not even worth it. I mean, just, he does just the most repulsive kind of things um, where he finds uh, black homeless men on the streets and gets them to say stuff like, you know, Hitler was the greatest president and then just rap remixes of it. Um, you know, it just kind of, uh, but it, it's, it's utterly repulsive and disgusting. Um, and I don't want to like amplify him here, but you know, basically that, that's, that's what he does. I mean, they, you know, when they're actually destroying the media's equipment, they're like, Oh, this is a nice microphone. I mean, these are the kind of people who, you know, complain publicly about, well, you're not really covering the truth, but then when they have the opportunity to do it on their own YouTube channel, they just uh, release racist screeds. So, uh, yeah. Uh, next one is Joshua Dylan Haynes, who the only information I was able to find out about him uh, is that he's bipolar, uh, 39, of Covington, Virginia, um, and... It's under house arrest and apparently also assaulted a family member in July. But again, if you look at Marx's description of lumpen proletariat, a lot of these people, part of the reason why they're out of gainful employment uh, is because they have some sort of underlying uh, deficiency. And that, that would include things such as mental health issues. And uh, Mr. Haynes, you know, if I look for your information and the only thing I can find out about you from published press reports is that you're bipolar, uh, you probably don't have uh, much going on in the way of educational attainment or occupational history. Next is uh, Nicholas Patrick Hendricks, 34, of Gorham, Maine. 
uh, who is described as a veteran suffering from PTSD, which of course is a serious issue, who also has some kind of opioid issue and is on Suboxone. So many of the people, I'm guessing, again, I wasn't able to find any LinkedIn information, but if you're a vet with PTSD who's also on Suboxone therapy, probably not someone who is uh, regularly employed in the gainful economy or, you know, there would be some information showing that. It's not a surprise that, that there isn't in his case. Timothy Wayne Williams, 38, of Trinidad, Colorado, is an unemployed hydroponics equipment supplier. Um, so hydroponics, probably, you know, growing tomatoes or, or maybe weed. I don't know if you, you know, work in a hydroponics in Colorado, you might be supplying equipment for growing weed, uh, marijuana, which of course is bad. Um, but he was actually fired for refusing a COVID test, not, not vaccination, which is merely a test. So unemployed hydroponic equipment supplier. Again, that seems pretty marginal. He was on the list. James Burton McGraw, who is a former Marine, uh, who was living in rehab, 39, of Biloxi, Mississippi. Again, if you are, you know, living in a rehab facility and you decide to go to uh, the Capitol insurrection on January 6th, you might be uh, a member of the Lumpen Poultry. Sean Michael McHugh, who is a reg registered sex offender, 34, of Aurora, California. Uh, he made a bit of a splash. Um apparently uh, raping teenage girls, uh, who, from what little information I was able to find about his employment history, uh, is apparently involved somehow in labor and construction. But again, many people who are registered sex offenders who wind up in the margins of society, there's limits to where they can live, uh, limits in, in terms of their occupational employee, you know, uh, <laughs> who's going to hire you, right? So uh, again, and Marx associates criminality of various kinds. Uh, with the lumpen proletariat, and I'm guessing Sean is probably in that category. Daniel Lyons Scott, who uh, formerly was a Boeing, he's a proud boy, uh, he had worked in the wing fabrication facility, um, and uh, recently moved uh, to Bradenton, Florida, age 28. Uh, you know, he kind of is an interesting category, right? Presumably had a good job, um, but, you know, Public outrage at his repeated involvement in far-right political violence as a member of the Proud Boys wound up, you know, he lost his job. This is a, I believe he goes by the nickname Milkshake um, and is, you know, derided by the other Proud Boys in some of the video for actually declaring publicly that they're going to go storm the Capitol before they've actually gone and stormed the Capitol. Um, but, you know, definitely someone who I would include in that category as well. If you've been fired for your violent uh, political gang activity, you're probably uh, economically marginal. Matthew Klein of Oregon, 24, uh, who's a migrant farm worker. Um, this is someone who goes from uh, house to house, farm to farm, uh, different places, uh, looking for odd jobs, um, which is something that you know one might have thought went out of fashion uh, in the Great Depression with the, the, the Okies. Um, but, you know, there are apparently, you know, there are still people uh, in some parts of the country uh, who are doing this, not, you know, not a regular form of employment, um, pretty marginal. Again, Mark Anthony Brew, who is a, quote, self-employed events coordinator, 
And Brew is another proud boy, uh, in fact, a quite well-known one. He's 41 years old of Vancouver, Washington. Um, again, you know, does, yeah, we don't know what kind of events he was coordinating. I expect they might actually all be, uh, you know, right-wing, uh, you know, and pro-fascist events. Anyway, uh, one Oliver Lewis Sarko, uh, of Columbus, Ohio, 26, who appears to be an unemployed oil field worker. Uh, he may have attended college for a while, but I don't have any evidence that he actually attained his degree. Jackson Kostolsky, um, who's 32, Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, occupation unknown, but lives with his mother. Again, you know, if you're 32 years old uh, and you don't have any employment history and you live with your mom, you might be a member of the Lumpen Proletariat. Albuquerque Cosper Head of Kingsport, Tennessee, uh, 41 years old. I believe I've talked about him before. Uh, he was an extremely long criminal history, uh, apparently. Um, not apparently, definitely. Uh, again, you know, definitionally to what Marx would call the category of the lumpen proletariat. Uh, you know, probably, you know, someone who's not a productive and game, you know, gainfully employed member of society. Um, I would probably, you know, you wouldn't hire this guy. Daniel D. Phelps, who's a flight school dropout, 48, from Garland, Texas. Again, one of those people with this uh, very marginal kind of employment history, sort of drifted around. Um, no evidence of any kind of educational attainment whatsoever. Uh, appears to have dropped out of, of lots of different things over the course of his life. Anthony Alexander Antonio of Naperville, Illinois, age 27. Uh, three percenter, and uh, he has made has gotten some press attention because he is the fellow who has claimed whose attorney has claimed they suffered from foxitis, right? So uh, he's lounging around at home all day watching Fox News. Uh, he, you know, he's unemployed and watching Fox News, and that radicalized him, and he went to the Capitol. Um, that is a pattern that I think actually might be more common. Um, in this group, uh, especially, you know, one might imagine among those 47 people for whom I could find no information. It's just that his attorney has decided to be especially frank about it and is, you know, using it as a defense strategy. Probably not going to, you know, relate to his actual guilt, but, you know, he might try to get this taken into account in terms of, of sentencing as a, as a kind of a mitigating factor because his guilt may not be all that much in question. Sean Bradley Witzeman, Witzeman uh, who is a journalist, right? Uh, so put that in quotation marks, uh, from Farmington, New Mexico, age 38. Um, and this is someone who, you know, is, calls himself a journalist, entirely uncredentialed, um, and has a GoFundMe to pay for his legal defense, uh, which has raised so far $5. So... Not someone who has, you know, enough of a following with regard to his journalism that he can, you know, he's got one contribution for $5. Uh, Stephen Ethan Horn, who's also described as a journalist, age 23, from Wake Forest, North Carolina. He's the guy who's got, you know, full uh, live-action role-play gear, climbs up uh, inside the Capitol, uh, again... You know, not a real job, right? 
James Les Little, uh, who is 64, Claremont, North Carolina, lives with his mother, no uh, visible means of support. He might be a caregiver, but I don't know. I mean, if you're actually a caregiver, are you going to leave your aging elderly mom at home on uh, a random Wednesday just so you can uh, try to overthrow the United States government? So, you know, doubt that very much. Jordan Kenneth Stotts of Moorhead, Minnesota, um, who is a, a seasonal greenhouse worker, age 31. So he apparently just works part of the year, uh, going around from greenhouse to greenhouse, doing various kinds of agricultural labor. And finally, Andrew Jackson Morgan, uh, who calls himself an independent journalist and equal rights, so, sorry, civil rights arbiter, um, age 33 of Texas. So these are people, again, you know, criminal histories, yes, uh, issues with, you know, drugs, perhaps alcohol, uh, document, yeah, I know Cosper had, uh, particularly, has some issues in that regard, you know, documented histories of, you know, marginal employment slash no employment slash uh, just sort of, you know, drifting around uh, from job to job, vagabondism, right? So, you know, these are people who are, you know, marginal in, in every sense of the term with regard to, you know, what we might consider being productive members of society. All right, so this category of people who are either unemployed, drugs or alcohol, um, criminal histories, uh, you know, living in some sort of group housing or rehab, all these indicators of sort of economic marginality. Um, you know, indeed, if you look at it, I mean, overall, yes, I, I was able to identify 21 such individuals. Um, it might be even more. Uh, you know, there's 47 individuals that, you know, I wasn't able to find any information for. Um, the rate of unemployment among capital riot defendants, capital insurrection defendants, is, you know, might be rather high. And there appears to have been this, you know, sort of special relationship between Trump and these kinds of people, i.e. Uh, white, marginally, econo economically marginal people. Uh, and what I'd like to do is sort of assess the issue of this, you know, this category. Like, numerically, it's, it's more numerous than, you know, than professionals. You know, it's right up there with, uh, you know, law enforcement, military, former military, uh, although they're, they're not mutually exclusive category. So if you were paying attention at all to Gamergate or Charlottesville or what's been happening in Portland, uh, you can't help but notice this kind of a correlation, this, this pattern between uh, this, this underemployed or underemployed, uh, you know, unemployed white men who have this interest in white right-wing extremism. I always called it white-wing extremism. Um, but there's this overlap between this category of Neats, right? Not in employment, education, or training, uh, and you know, perhaps incels, right? Um, or you know, what Marx calls the the lumpen proletariat. So some of these people have, have in effect, made right-wing extremism their whole personality. The defendants such as uh, Zvonimir Zerlina and Gabriel Brown, those YouTubers, or Sean Bradley. Witzeman or uh, Stephen Ethan Horn, 
who call themselves journalists but who have no training or credentials, or people such as Daniel Lyon Scott, i.e., you know, aka Milkshake of the Proud Boys, who, you know, had to leave what was presumably a stable job with good pay and benefits, making wings at Boeing, uh, when public pressure led to them imposing the consequence of unemployment upon him for his repeated participation in Proud Boy uh, street gang activities. Uh, and again, you know, others like Albuquerque Cosper Head and Sean Michael McHugh, uh, who have criminal histories that also probably foreclose many career options for them, or other people such as Joshua Dylan Haynes and Nicholas Patrick Hendricks, who, uh, you know, have histories of, of mental health and substance abuse issues that also, again, tend to render them rather uh, marginal with regard to, you know, employment and educational attainment. So, uh, again, what was my expectation going into this? Um, when, I, when I went into it, I, I thought there would, you know, I took it as a bit of a given that there would be a sizable number of, of white, higher-income, college-educated defendants among the January 6th defendants, mainly because that's what the data on overall Trump support shows us according to exit polls. 27% uh, of Trump's 2020 support came from white, college-educated voters. And Trump won the support of 46% of white college-educated voters overall. So I'd expected the, the numbers of the defendants to look uh, uh, a bit like this. Um, now, you know, I thought it might be a little bit different, right? Uh, but the proportion of January 6th defendants who hold a college degree appears to be far lower than the proportion of Trump supporters in the electorate who hold a college degree. The proportion of college-educated defendants, if the information is accurate, uh, the data you know, I was able to find is accurate, is about a quarter of what appears to be in the, in the overall population. Even if that's an undercount based on some kind of data problem, it's still uh, you know, half of what it is in the overall population, according to the exit polls. So I think if you want to try to understand why that's the case, you have to think about social class. Now... Mainstream American political science typically today doesn't concern itself overly with issues of class. Uh, we typically leave that issue to sociologists or social psychologists or people like that, other parts of social science. And there's this tendency to treat social classes as simply one interest group among many. Now, this wasn't always the case, but since around 1980 or so, leading mainstream journals of political science tend to steer clear of uh, issues of class. Uh, a cynic might suggest that class isn't a topic that excites tenure committees. Um, there are any number of analytic frameworks you could use to understand the dynamics of class in January 6th. Uh, I think about you know, things such as uh, Ted Robert Gurr and relative deprivation. But, you know, laying something like that to one side, it seems to me that the most directly applicable framework that we can use to understand this comes from classical Marxist political thought, uh, which is the category of the lumpen proletariat. Um, and this is a bit of a problem for me, uh, in so much as there's a rather excellent book on the subject of the relationship between the lumpen proletariat and the, the Trumpist movement that was put out by uh, the University of Michigan Press in 2020. And this is the... Uh, the the Dangerous Class, The Concept of the Lumpen Proletariat by Professor Clyde Barrow of the University of Texas in Rio Grande Valley. 
I'm actually going to try to avoid um, drawing on that work as much as possible here, but I just wanted to point you to it uh, because it, it actually stands out very much. It just stands out as an exception to the general rule regarding the blindness toward class in American political science today. Professor Barrow has written an essay on the themes of the book, which is available at https colon backslash. Uh, the essay is available at https colon backslash backslash socialistproject.ca backslash 2020 backslash 08 Donald Trump, a new emperor of the lumpen proletariat. Uh, so the book itself is at like 75 bucks or 65 if you can find a good deal. Um, but there are actually a, a couple of different, uh, he almost wrote like a review article of his own book uh, that, you know, gives you a good idea of the themes that he covers. But again, I just wanted to point you to that. I might, might make a reference to it at a couple of points, but I'm not going to draw on it too terribly much. Although there's, you know, any kind of similarities, anytime you're going to review the concept of the Roman proletariat, you're going to wind up with some uh, similarities. So um, he really has a good analysis of the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte that's probably going to convince you that Donald Trump was entirely predicted by an essay uh, written by Marx in 1852. So I'm not going to summarize it here, uh, but I'd just like to point you in that direction. What I am going to do here, at first anyway, is to try to stick to the idea of the lumpen proletariat as it relates to classical Marxism, i.e. the works of Marx and Engels. Now, I'm sure for many of you this is going to be a review, so I won't spend too much time on the subject before moving to the idea of how uh, Donald Trump mobilized the lumpen proletariat politically in his rise to power, and especially on January 6th. It's noteworthy that you don't have to be an orthodox Marxist to use Marx's concept of the lumpen proletariat to try to understand this part of Trump's base. Over the course of the last six years or so now, many people uh, from all across the political spectrum have described uh, many of Trump's supporters using this term. Indeed, even people who I think would be loath to use Marxist concepts in almost any other concept, uh, you know, any other context, people such as Jeffrey Sachs, uh, someone who almost single-handedly, with the help of other Harvard boys, ruined uh, the Russian economy, uh, you know, talk about the, the lumpen proletariat in connection uh, with the, the Trump supporters and the electorate. So, now to my mind, this is a, a pretty clear vindication of uh, Marx's thought on the concept. Um, Liberalism simply doesn't really know what to do with the lumpen proletariat, and that's why we see what you know appears to be an outright theft of this Marxist concept at this moment in history. That's why there's this intellectual revival in the public discourse of the idea of the lumpen proletariat. Whether you accept dialectical materialism and the whole edifice of Marxist political theory or not, this is simply the right conceptual framework to understand our current moment. After that, I'm going to move on to a key point that I think has been largely missed regarding the discussion of the lumpen proletarian elements of Trump's space, which is simply that this, that, that Trump didn't create the white lumpen proletariat, nor did he really even radicalize it. All he did was to mobilize a class of people who, in ordinary circumstances, are largely ignored 
and invisible. Marx and Engels first uh, derive the concept of the lump and the proletariat as a conceptual category in the analysis of class in the German ideology in the mid-1840s in the context of the description of the plebeian class in ancient Rome. Now, at the time, it was a neologism. Uh, one of the advantages of German is that you can just sort of mash up two words, which Marx and Engels did, by combining the German lumpen for ragged with the French proletariat from the Latin proletarii, uh, which is just producers of children, a term that was used in ancient Rome to describe the lowest class, the class that had no assessed wealth, um, but who did produce children. So in German, it's, it's pronounced uh, lumpenproletariat, but somehow in English, the accepted pronunciation has become lumpenproletariat, so I'm going to try to stick with that, even though it's, it's clearly wrong. Uh, also, it rhymes with Trump and proletariat, so we'll go with that. So it's not until the cataclysms of 1848 that Marx and Engels really begin to flesh out the lumpenproletariat and it. Lumpenproletariat. Um, in doing so, it's clear that they're responding thoughtfully, but in a somewhat ad hoc fashion, to developments on the ground in France. I don't know if you're, you know, familiar with the revolutions of 1848 in France and across Europe, um, but, you know, a lot of ink was spilled by, by Marx and Engels uh, on the subject. And um, it was this support for reaction and counter-revolution that came from the lowest elements of the existing social order that provides this historical moment that leads to this understanding of the lumpen proletariat in classical Marxism as a fundamentally reactionary class. Uh, Marx calls them the dangerous class, and that, again, is a, the title of Professor Barrow's book. Um, so here's Marx's description in the class struggles in France of the force mobilized by the provisional government in 1848 to fight on behalf of the bourgeoisie. Quote, they belonged, for the most part, to the lumpen proletariat, which, in all big towns, forms a mass sharply differentiated from the industrial proletariat, a recruiting ground for thieves and criminals of all kinds living on the crumbs of society, people without a definite trade, vagabonds, men without hearth or home, varying according to the degree of civilization of the nation to which they belong, but never renouncing their Lazaroni character. Uh, vagabonds, basically. At the youthful age at which the provisional government recruited them, thoroughly malleable, as capable of the most heroic deeds and the most exalted sacrifices, as of the basest banditry and the foulest corruption. The provisional government paid them one franc fifty centimes a day. That is, it bought them. End quote. So I'm going to go through this and some of the other statements Marx and or Engels made with regard to the lumpen proletariat following the events of 1848 uh, and looking at, you know, what the basic characteristics of the lumpen proletariat are uh, in classical Marxism. Now, first thing is that the, the language Marx always uses to describe the lumpen proletariat is normative. Uh, they're depicted as debased, degraded, as cast-offs, ruffians, scoundrels, vagabonds, you name it. There's always this moral component. And uh, 
Marx and Engels are quick to generalize from this particular instance of a counter-revolutionary mass in France in 1848 to the rest of human history. According to them, every mode of production has its lump in proletariat. They're always dangerous, they're always criminal, they're always reactionary. Uh, here's another example taken from Engels' description of a proto-lumpen mass in 16th century Germany from his 1850 work, The Peasant War, War in Germany. Quote, The lumpen proletariat, this scum of the decaying elements of all classes, which establishes headquarters in all the big cities, is the worst of all possible allies. It is an absolutely venial and absolutely brazen crew. If the French workers, in the course of the revolution, inscribed on our houses death to the thieves and even shot down many, they did it not out of an enthusiasm for property, but because they rightly considered it necessary to hold that band at arm's length. Every leader of the workers who utilizes these gutter proletarians as guards or supports proves him by this, himself by this action alone a traitor to the movement, end quote. So it's a little curious, I mean, in this connection, that if, if the state's the executive committee of the bourgeoisie and the bourgeois is defined by uh, maintaining their dominant political, you know, and, well, property relationship to the means of production, you wouldn't think that criminality in and of itself, particularly as it relates to property, would carry much normative weight to it. But nonetheless, Marx and Engels uh, clearly think that, that it does. And the reason why is from the relation stems from the relationship of the lumpen proletariat to the means of production. So just as the definitional characteristics of the, the proletariat, the bourgeoisie, uh, come from their relationship to the means of production, um, in this instance, it stems from the, the non-relation to the means of production, right? So the, the proletariat develops class consciousness through the process of... Uh, no, labor, essentially, right? And the lumpen proletariat, which is estranged from that process, doesn't have that same revolutionary potential. Um, they stand outside these relations. And so in classical Marxist theory, the lumpen proletariat doesn't have revolutionary potential. And in fact, they can only emerge onto the stage of world history as a reactionary mass that's mobilized against revolution, that's bribed against the proletarian class, that they, they're, they're paid-off mercenaries who do the dirty work on behalf of the economically dominant class. And they, they, they impose this, you know, they, they hold this belief, uh, Marx and Engels do in classical Marxism, that this, this applies not only to the capitalist mode of production, but all of human history. All of human history, there are these vagabonds, there are these scoundrels who don't respect societal norms, who stand outside the dominant means of economic relations, the dominant system of economic relations, uh, who are uh, impoverished um, and susceptible to being bribed and uh, in order to, to commit crimes, essentially, uh, on behalf of the ruling class, whatever that may be, um, against the, 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 you know, the, the mass of, of the people. So these are what I would char characterize as the essential qualities of the lumpen proletariat. Uh, the first thing, again, they're estranged from the means of production. They stand outside of it, right? 
They're, you know, to use our modern context, they're, they're people like Albuquerque Cosper had long criminal history, not really gainfully employed for, for pretty much, you know, or Shane Leiden Jenkins, right? Whole episode on him. Um, or, you know, uh, various people who have uh, mental health issues or disabilities uh, in some instances, uh, either real or feigned, right? Um, you know, certainly not beyond, beyond the kind of naive that Marx and Engels describe uh, to, you know, feign a disability simply to, to get out of work. Um, they're rootless, right? So the original lumpen proletariat are dispossessed peasants who are cast off the land and then moved to the cities, and many of them find employment, but the ones who don't wind up subsisting from criminality or parasitic behavior. Uh, the second thing is they are poor, right? So this estrangement from uh, the means of supporting themselves and their families results in poverty, which, uh, as a consequence, means that they have a mercenary character. Because they're poor, uh, they are they are apt to being bribed, and they, as you know, they don't have class consciousness. They really don't care um, as long as you know it pays the bills. They'll be scabs. They'll be mercenaries. They'll be uh, you know some kind of volunteer militia, um, and they're also parasitic, right? You know, because you have this mass that's poor, that is parasitic, uh, you know, they, they don't have class consciousness, they don't have the, the moral constraints, they're, they're desperate, uh, and they, they're just, they're reactionary, rootless, poor, mercenary parasites. Um, so, yeah, and again, that's, you know, that all logically follows from being estranged from the means of production. They're reactionary, they're rootless, they're poor, they're mercenary, they're parasitic. They're counter-revolutionary, and they're criminal, and they're prone to violence. So those are, you know, these essential characteristics of the lumpen proletariat. Um, to move beyond that uh, in, in classical Marxism, we find that, the, you know, the analysis of the capitalist mode of production in classical Marxism, you know, posits two basic antagonistic classes, which in Hegelian terms, we call the master class and the slave class, i.e. the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Now, within this analysis, there are ancillary categories, such as the petty bourgeoisie and, of course, the lumpen proletariat. Um, part of what's interesting about the, the special role of the lumpen proletariat in the classical Marxist description of class formation is that it takes on this boundless protean quality that's at odds with its description as a marginal and reactionary class that will be cast aside and merged with the universal class, the proletariat. In this way, you know, it's, it's like that from the very beginning, right? It has this protean quality. Um, and we can refer back to uh, Barrow's work on the subject, where we find Louis Napoleon described as, quote, the representative of the lumpen proletariat to which he himself, his entourage, his government, and his army belong and whose main object is to benefit itself and draw California lottery prices, prizes from the state treasury. So I know I just talked about poverty for a moment, but um, apparently you can generalize, right? You know, because of this estrangement from the means of production and productive processes in society, uh, the, you know, the president who wants to become an emperor and does become an emperor, thanks to a coup of France, as son of an emperor, Louis Napoleon, um, at the very moment he stages his coup to install himself, is regarded by Marx as a thoroughly lumpen figure, not just because he's identified with the lumpen mass who wind up becoming his instrument, but also because his aim is theft. 
And that's not just Louis Napoleon. Marx, who writes in the Neue Rheinische Zeitung on January 21st, 1849, also describes the liberal Cologne newspaper publisher Joseph Dumont as uh, someone who has lumpens in his employ. Quote, lumpens, sorry. There are financial magnates, big creditors of the state, bankers, and rentiers, whose wealth increases proportionately to the poverty of the people. And finally, men whose business depends upon the old political structure, i.e. Dumont and his literary lumpen proletariat. So not only can an emperor be described by Marx as a lumpen, because he's a criminal, um, but you can also have newspaper correspondents who are described as lumpen because they're hired guns writing about things of which Marx disapproves. So... Again, poverty doesn't appear to be as essential to uh, this lumpen category. Uh, the concept of lumpenness can be applied to people in imperial robes and uh, people, you know, who uh, are just writers, right, who are trying to support themselves. So, you know, doesn't matter if you're wearing robes or rags, uh, you know, according to Marx, you, you can be lumpen. And in fact, he even applies this concept of the lumpen proletariat to the bourgeoisie itself, in his description of the bourgeoisie under the July monarchy, uh, which uh, is taken from the class struggles in France, uh, edited and published by Engels in 1895. Quote, Since the finance aristocracy made the laws, was at the head of the administration of the state, had command of all the organized public authorities, dominated public opinion through the actual state of affairs and through the press, the same prostitution, the same shameless cheating, the same mania to get rich was repeated in every sphere, from the court to the café born, to get rich not by production, but by pocketing the already available wealth of others, clashing every moment with the bourgeois laws themselves, an unbridled assertion of unhealthy and dissolute appetites manifested itself, particularly at the top of bourgeois society. Lusts herein, wherein wealth derived from gambling, naturally seats its satisfaction, where pleasure becomes debauched, where money, filth, and blood commingle. The finance aristocracy, in its mode of acquisition as well as its pleasures, is nothing but the rebirth of the lumpen proletariat on the heights of bourgeois society. So, in quote, here we see even the bourgeois itself can, you know, these people, the bourgeoisie, can become lumpen. The role of financial capital is depicted here by Marx as lumpen uh, because it's, you know, fundamentally normative. And it's no accident that, you know, Marx here is hearkening all the way back to Plato. Um, I'm sure he's doing it consciously, right? You know, uh, he's describing this class, uh, one of the essential attributes of, of being lumpen, as appetitive, right? So that's the appetitive class, the lowest class in Plato's Republic. So when the capitalist class becomes purely extractive and appetitive and criminal, it becomes lumpen in character. So, you know, poverty is a characteristic of the lumpen and the proletariat property, but lumpenness or the lumpen character can be applied to other classes or other subclasses as well. And, you know... It's interesting, but I mean, if, if you take this analysis as far as Marx and Engels do, um, 
the concept of the lump of the proletariat is no longer parsimonious. It's, it's, it's not quite, it's not simple. We begin with this reactionary mob that's bought off in Paris and end with a, a non-class social grouping that's somehow protean and almost universal. And there are times when uh, Marx and Engels use it as an epithet. This is a normative concept that's just used to describe things they, they don't like. Um, but, you know, that's, I mean, one possible critique of the idea of lumpenness, uh, setting aside for a moment this, you know, this concrete social class as a social grouping that rises up and appears at different points in history. They're always with us, right? And so that's one of the things that this, this recent vogue for the idea of the lumpen proletariat or the Trumpen proletariat in connection with Trump sometimes appears in a miss. I mean, some writers seem to say that or suggest that, that Trump created this class of people. It didn't, right? And in, in part because of the, the racialized conception of class in America, we tend to overlook the fact that probably for most of the history of the United States, the majority of the lumpen proletariat has been white, right? So, you know, many times authors will, you know, refer to the lumpen proletariat and, and assume that they're non-white. But, you know, point of fact, probably for most of American history, uh, including the present day, most lumpen uh, people uh, are, in fact, actually uh, white. And, you know, doesn't really address, like, the, how this category, right, which we've moved from uh, a concrete social or non, non-class, uh, becomes this sort of, you know, just, just this, this adjective that's applied to uh, different groups who are doing things that are uh, somehow reactionary. I mean, the key element is that, you know, there's a, this lack of class consciousness and a um, assertion of, of self-interest, you know, and so, I mean, there's a sense in which it can even be applied uh, for Marx and Engels to the bourgeoisie itself. Um, and you could, you know, you can track this, this conceptual, con- this concept uh, throughout time, right? Uh, through, you know, for, for the course of the last 170 years now, uh, from you know when the concept's introduced to how the idea has been introduced by and, and used by uh, other theorists, and uh, the changes that have occurred in class composition, class formation by the introduction and the eventual dissolution of the welfare state, um, you can relate to the idea of the lumpen proletariat to core peripheral relationships. Um, or, you know, again, how the concept is, is racialized, uh, especially in the, con- in the context of the United States, but, but also elsewhere. And um, how the lumpen proletariat relates to bourgeois ideas, such as the concept of the underclass, right? Um, or how the idea of the lumpen proletariat itself just kind of fell out of fail- favor for uh, decades, while leftist theory tended to focus more on ideas and takes this semantic turn away from materialism and how the concept then sort of reemerges as suddenly important as deindustrialization in the core states reduces the living standard of many people who had formerly been part of the industrial proletariat proper. So, um, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a big idea, but, uh, you know, and it becomes amorphous, but I think... Uh, the concept of the lumpen proletariat becomes most concrete at these moments when it, it kind of sticks its head out of the trailer park and says, you know, 
uh, intrudes on Congress and tries to overthrow the government. Indeed, we, we actually have, you know, arguably lumpen members of Congress now, uh, people such as Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. So, you know, I, I think that despite these the complexity and despite, you know, the, the broad and protean character of the lumpen proletariat as a conception itself, it's nonetheless a useful tool to understand Trump and Trumpism. Um, and, you know, it's this elite activation element that's present in Marxist theory that I think is, is useful in this time. You know, we see this argument time and time again that the, you know, the circumstances of January 6th are, are unique. Um, they're not. They're not unique. The lumpen proletariat is always with us. Um, and the key element in the insurrection was that you had Trump speaking directly to them, paying their hotel bills, busing them into Washington, D.C., and uh, mobilizing them against the legislative branch of government in an effort to overthrow electoral democracy. And we all saw, you know, just what happened. Mainstream, I think, political theory or political science uh, doesn't really have an account for for what happened. Um, and, you know, I certainly wasn't necessarily expecting this. Personally, when I, when I first, again, looked at the capital insurrection defendants, looked at their educational attainment, looked at their occupational categories, um, I was curious about this socioeconomic dimension of the question. But, you know... It's not confirmation bias in this instance. I actually wasn't expecting this result that, you know, you know, at least 20 and possibly as many as 50% of the mob, you know, could be classed as what Marx and Engels would have called um, lumpen. You know, I would have expected they, they would mirror the characteristics of Trump supporters that we see from exit polls in 2016 and 2020. Um, some of that's my fault, my own fault, right? There's a bit of an informational bias. Uh, there's, there's confirmation bias. And we tend to, you know, look at the, the, the news stories as they come out and say, oh, hey, look, there's another realtor storming the Capitol because uh, they want another tax cut. But, you know, we tend not to remember those defendants for whom no occupational information is listed. So, um, again, in order to get to 100 defendants, I had to look at 147. And... That in and of itself is a kind of data point. In terms of their educational attainment, these defendants are far below average. Now, there's a literal handful of people who appear to have college degrees. Um, even a smaller proportion have advanced degrees, and that is true uh, at a much lower rate than Trump supporters as a whole and lower rate than we find as a population as a whole. So... I, to my mind, this, this points to a broader problem. Um, we don't really, in terms of our political discourse, uh, speak to this group of people. Um, in fact, you know, Democrats don't have a great history on this, right? I mean, probably the worst thing Obama said during his presidency with regard to was, you know, these jobs, right? Uh, jobs that were exported to other countries. Um, you know, he said, these jobs aren't coming back, ignoring the fact that this was a result of public policy. This is a resort of taxpayer support. The lumpen proletariat today is so large precisely because Nixon went to China and there was a concerted effort on the part of finance aristocracy and publicly held corporations to maximize shareholder value in the 1980s and the 1990s by exporting jobs to other countries that were low wage 
and then using that money, taking that money to, quote, enhance shareholder value, which oftentimes meant to uh, enrich insiders who also at the same time were able to use techniques such as stock buybacks, which had been illegal for nearly 100 years and uh, only became legal again at this time, you know, as a form of market manipulation, you know, I mean, again, if you're having corporations, publicly traded corporations that are issuing stock to insiders uh, through programs, um, you know, such as uh, the, the various kinds of, of share uh, options that they receive, right? And then you're, you know, basically, you know, having the same companies buy back uh, <laughs> on the same books, uh, those stock shares to rich insiders, um, you know, it, it's no accident. Right, this is a concerted effort. Uh, the lumpenization of large sectors of the American working class to try to, uh, you know, extract shareholder value. And I want to be clear, right? The, the the rioters themselves aren't necessarily motivated by what the press likes to call economic anxiety. Um, I mean, there's racism, sexism, nativism, homophobia, and practically every form of bigotry imaginable that's still evident in the Trumpist movement and on the increase. And it's fueled by this vast propaganda machine that is generating outrage and disinformation every news cycle. But at the same time, I, I think that, you know, uh, a lot of folks who oppose authoritarianism in this moment need to be aware that we don't have any kind of message um, that is, you know, really resonating with people. Right? Marxist theory does it quite well. Marxist theory says, look, there are people to whom you can point, right? But the problem is that you have this category, the lumpen proletariat, and they're estranged from the means of production. They never develop class consciousness. So the problem for the real left, you know, as opposed to uh, mere liberals, is developing class consciousness in this group that's estranged from the means of production uh, and who may be susceptible to either efforts to buy them off, um, which can be done apparently relatively cheaply, uh, and or efforts uh, that, you know, to thoroughly propagandize them uh, by things such as these various uh, troll factories in places such as Macedonia and elsewhere in the Balkans and the Commonwealth of Independent States. Not that Russia is causing all this, right? Uh, this is much more, I would argue, the product of shareholder capitalism, maximizing shareholder value, uh, the deindustrialization of the United States, than it is uh, the result of you know something that was quote, done to us uh, by some other country. But you know, uh, I would offer this perhaps as you know a bit of a counter narrative to to the liberal narrative, right? Which is there's this uh, you know this idea of a meritocracy that we now live. And a meritocracy, and it's it's just not true. And you know, certainly lumpens and and working class people uh, recognize it. We live in in a fake meritocracy. Um, class formation is a process inherent in every mode of production. You have peasants and nobility and feudalism because you have an economic and social system of relations that are predicated on reproducing that system of relations. The white lumpen proletariat didn't grow because of uh, the individual moral failings of deplorable people, but rather because of material conditions. It wasn't created by Trump. But Trump, as this kind of uh, Bonapartist personality, spoke to them, and he gave them permission and agency 
and he summoned them, and that made all the difference on January 6th. And, of course, there's this huge, decades-long concerted effort by this right-wing propaganda industrial complex that's radicalizing these folks into supporting actual fascism. And the danger, not just for the left, but for liberals and everyone who actually supports actual electoral democracy, is that Trump is still out there, the propaganda industrial complex is still out there, and all the preconditions that gave us the capital insurrection still apply today. Uh, the, Marx called the lumpen proletariat the dangerous class long before the internet. And these are a lot of people who have a lot of time uh, to self-radicalize themselves on the internet. And Marx would have said that their estrangement from the productive process itself prevents them from developing class consciousness, but it's also clearly worse when you have large, well-financed groups operating out of the Balkans or at Fox News or at OAN um, and the entire broadcast infrastructure of the radical Protestant religious right also serving to motivate people to these kinds of political violence. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Um, and uh, please, if you have not, uh, please like, rate, and subscribe and recommend the podcast to your friends. Uh, I'm Scott Kuhn. Thank you again.